You know, worship is all about God. And the primary instrument in worship is the voice of the congregation. And it's not about the music. The, the music is just there to uh, accommodate, to accompany the voice of the congregation. But it is, a, it is a blessing to have good music, isn't it? And did anyone notice the, have you noticed the addition of the harp? Man, thank God for Esther. Thank God for bringing Ken and Esther to First Baptist. <coughs> Excuse me, that's enjoyable. Well, today we are halfway through our series on identity, and it's very important, this idea of our identity, because all of us base or find our identity in things. And from our identity, we have direction for life, or we have meaning for life. All of this flows from our identity. And the majority of people find their identity in things like their marriage, their relationship with their spouse, the person that they love, uh, being a great husband or a great wife, or in their family, their relationship with their, their children, being a great mom, a great dad, a grandma, a grandpa. Or they'll find their sense of identity in their job, their success in their career, or being good at what they do, or even find their sense of identity in their hobbies. Things that they find a lot of enjoyment in and they give themselves to, and they'll have a sense of identity connected with that thing. But all of these things, relationships, employment, hobbies, family, all of these things are subject to change and they are guaranteed to end. There is a point in life when every one of them will cease. So where can we find a sense of identity that is not subject to change, that's not going to end in this life, and can give us both direction and meaning? And the answer is the gospel. The good news that a holy God has made a way for sinners who are separated from him to be brought near to him, to be reconciled and brought into relationship with him, and not just to be put in neutral, but to be put in the positive, to be credited with Christ's righteousness, and to be adopted into the family of God as sons and daughters of God through faith, through trust and confidence in the person of Jesus Christ. That's where we can find a sense of identity. When who God is and what he's done and who we are in relation to him is the source of our sense of identity, then we will find that the lives we're living are being built on a rock, on the rock of Christ Jesus, and not being built on foundations of sand, which are constantly in question, constantly subject to change. We won't be moved by the, the winds and, and change and the storms of life. Our compass will be set on true north, and we can keep moving forward. This is the only place worthy of finding our identity is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I said at the outset of this series that we could probably come up with a long list of gospel identities, identities that flow out of who God is and what he's done and who we are in relation to him. But we were going to focus on four primary identities 
that belong to everyone who has taken hold of God's offer of new life in Jesus Christ. And so the first week we talked about the first of those identities as family. And our key text was Ephesians chapter 2, verses 18 through 19, which tells us, by the Spirit, through Christ, we have access to the Father and are members of the household of God. So the Spirit has done a work in our lives, giving us faith in Christ so that we can come to God, not as judge, but as Father. And we are now part of God's family. Every Christian being our brother or sister, Jesus being our older brother, God being our Father, this is our primary identity. Nothing can ever change that we are a part of the family of God. Last week, we talked about another identity, that we are Students, And we looked at Matthew 11, 28 through 30, which is a very familiar verse, very popular verse, where Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, or you will find rest for your souls. We, we all like that invitation of Jesus. We feel the weight of things, and so Jesus' offer, come and take your weight off, is very appealing. But Jesus adds to that, come and learn from me and take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And so what we gather is that no one enters into Jesus's rest who is not likewise intending to learn from him. No one can enter Jesus's rest who is not willing to take his yoke upon them and learn and become his student and learn his ways and his commands that they should walk in them. So if we are Christians, then we are family. And if we are Christians, we are students. And these are identities that belong to us because of the gospel that will never change. Well, today we're going to look at another one of our primary identities in light of who God is, what he's done, and who we are in relation to him and what he's called us to. And he's called us to be servants. And so if you, have, if you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me today to John chapter 13. John chapter 13 as we look at verses 12 through 17. <clears throat> Excuse me. John 13, 12 through 17. And here's how it reads. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, this is talking about Jesus, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. This is the word of the Lord. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. Amen? Amen. Amen. So this event in the life of Jesus takes place on the eve of Jesus' death and his subsequent betrayal, his arrest, 
and his crucifixion. All of, all of those events are going to follow very shortly after the scene in which Jesus says these words. And the first thing that I want to point out to you about this passage is Jesus's status. Jesus's status. He makes very clear what is his relationship toward his disciples who are present there. In verse 13, he says, they call him teacher and Lord, and they are right to do so because he is. Now, Lord here doesn't mean God. Sometimes we use those interchangeably. Lord here, though, doesn't mean God. It simply means master. At another time, Jesus had asked his disciples, who do men say that I am? And they answered, some say Elijah or one of the prophets. Some say John the Baptist raised from the dead. But Jesus said, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ. So you are the promised and anointed king. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says to Peter, Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, Peter, but my Father who is in heaven. And so Peter is acknowledging that Jesus is more than just an earthly master. That Jesus is Lord, meaning God. That Jesus is divine. He is the Son of God. So at another point, Peter says that. Jesus affirms he got it right. But at this point, and this conversation, He's not specifically referencing his divinity or deity, but rather his authority in regards to them, his relationship to them. He is the teacher. They are the student. He is the master. They are the servants. And so the first point should be on the screen is we see Jesus's status. But Jesus goes one step further in establishing the relationship. He says that a servant is not greater than his master. What Jesus is telling them is he is of greater importance and rank than they are. Now, Jesus is not gloating. Jesus is not flaunting this in their faces. He's not being arrogant. He's simply defining the terms of their relationship for the sake of what he's trying to teach them. And he does that by way of example, which is the second thing I want to highlight in this text. Jesus' example. During the meal, Jesus of Nazareth, who was most likely older than all of his disciples, would have been the oldest person in the room, who was clearly the teacher whom they had traveled with for three years, the one whom they had made special arrangements for, for this meal, that he might eat it and that they might eat it with him. This Jesus, most important person in the room, gets up. And he takes off his, his outer garment. He takes off his coat, basically. And he gets down on his hands and knees. And he begins to wash the feet of each of the disciples. Now, if you've been a Christian for very long, or you've been involved in church long, or you've read the Bible much, you are probably familiar with this event in the life of Jesus. You've probably heard it before. And if that's the case, you've probably heard someone explain how menial and how lowly of a job it would have been for Jesus to wash the disciples' feet. After all, 
They all had open-toed sandals. They didn't have paved streets. They didn't have automobiles. There was horse traffic and animal-drawn carriages and carts. It was dusty. It was hot and humid. People were probably very sweaty. And so for Jesus to do that job would have been a very lowly thing. So to state the obvious, here's the most important person in the room assuming the role of the lowest person in the room, the person of least significance or importance, and providing a basic service to everyone who was present, which includes Judas Iscariot. A man who, though chosen by Jesus to be one of his followers, and a man who, though he had followed Jesus and been with Jesus for three years, had recently made an arrangement with the religious leaders to hand Jesus over to them and was only hours away from betraying Jesus into the hands of an angry mob who would torture him and hand him over to be executed like a common criminal. And this is a man that Jesus lowered himself before to serve. This thing that Jesus is doing, he is doing for everyone, including this guy, too. After Jesus had finished this act of service, he returns to his place at the table and he gives them the command that they should wash one another's feet. As he has done to them, they should do also. So we have Jesus' status here in the text. We have Jesus' example. We also have Jesus' command, as I have done for you, you should do likewise. Now, just to be clear, Jesus is not actually telling them all to get down and repeat what he has done. There's, there's, no, there's no part of the story where Jesus sits and he stares at them and he's like, well, are you going to do it? He wasn't literally saying, get down and do what I have just done for you. And also, there's no other command or reference of a command in the letters to the churches in the New Testament to literally wash other people's feet. And there's no evidence that this was a commonplace, consistent, across-the-board practice in the early church. So Jesus is giving a command, and it is not literally to wash one another's feet, but it is an actual command nonetheless. And here's what it is. Be a servant. Take the place of least significance. Show humility in the performance of basic service of kindness and honor and love to others. Amen. That's the command of Jesus. And to that, Jesus adds a blessing. That's the fourth thing I want to highlight in the text. Jesus' blessing. Jesus says, if you know who I am and my example and command and you follow them, you will be blessed. Jesus says that people who recognize his humility and service and emulate that will be blessed. Now, that's not to say that people who serve like Jesus served will be rich and get lots of stuff. That's not what he means, you'll be blessed. And that's not meaning that people who followed Jesus' example of service 
will experience their best life now and have all their dreams fulfilled in this life. Because that certainly wasn't Jesus' experience, nor was it the experience of any of the apostles. And it also doesn't mean, when he says you will be blessed, it also doesn't mean that by following Jesus' example, we will earn God's acceptance and love and forgiveness and be blessed with eternal life or go to heaven when we die. That's also not what Jesus means because faith and the forgiveness of sins and peace with God and eternal life are gifts from God that God gives based upon no merit of our own. They are gifts that God freely gives by grace. They are a blessing in and of themselves. But obeying Jesus and following his ways shows that we have been blessed with those gifts. We have been blessed with repentance. We have been blessed with faith. We have been blessed with eternal life. And the more we become like Jesus, the more we will experience the blessing of joy and fellowship with him in our lives. So that Jesus can truly say, if you know these things, who I am and my example and what I've commanded, and you do them, you will be blessed. So this episode from the life of Jesus recorded here in John 13 shows us Jesus' status. He is clearly the, the most significant person, the person of greatest importance. It shows us Jesus' example. Jesus took the lowest place, the place of least significance, to serve others. It shows us Jesus' command that his disciples should do likewise. And it shows us Jesus' blessing, that those who do what he did will be blessed. This means disciples of Jesus Christ, Christians, those who have seen their spiritual bankruptcy, they've seen their sin, they've seen their guilt, they've seen their inability to earn their way into heaven, they've seen God's mercy in the gift of his son Jesus Christ as a substitute for sinners in the place of sinners and they have repented they've turned away from a life of independence from God and a life of sin to Christ and they've put their trust in him these people Christians are servants in light of our embrace of the gospel this identity of servant is one of our primary identities. And it's, it's one of our primary identities because it was one of Jesus's primary identities. Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God. What that means is he has always existed as God the Son. There has never been a point when Jesus, as the Son of God, was not. But Jesus became a man. The word became flesh to serve. That's what Jesus said. He said the Son of Man came not to be served. Why did he as, as the only begotten Son of God enter into time and space, human history, take on human flesh, become a man? Not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This was his, one of his primary identities. And that's also why the apostles, when they're praying in Acts chapter 4, 
just after they've been persecuted for preaching in the name of Jesus. And they're asking God to do mighty works to draw attention to Jesus so that they might continue to preach in the name of Jesus and that people might become Christians or followers of Jesus. Two times in that one prayer in Acts chapter 4, they refer to the Son of God as God's holy servant, Jesus. This is one of Jesus's primary identities after becoming a man. So for the person who has faith in Jesus, who has received the offer of life in him, service is less about what we do and more about who we are because of what Jesus did and how he continues to serve us as our mediator before the Father, our advocate with the Father, and our great high priest before the throne of God. So the question for Christians then isn't if we will serve, but rather the question for Christians is if we're being who God has called us to be. What are the implications then of viewing ourselves as servants and embracing this as one of our primary identities in life because of who God is and what God has done for us in the gospel. There are three implications of this. The first of those is that our lives are about others. If we are a Christian, we are a servant. And if we are a servant, then our lives are about others. A servant, by definition, is someone whose concern is about others, not about themselves. A servant is focused on the needs, the experience, the care of the one they're serving. All their energies are devoted to that end, to service. I recently finished a book called You're Only Human by Kelly Capick. It, it, it bogs down in a couple places, but it's a great book if you can make it through. And in one particular section of this book, the author is talking about where we find our identity. And he says... You can't find your identity except in relation to other people. Try to explain to someone who you are without referencing your family, your nation, your culture, your affinity to other groups. It, it's impossible. There's no way to define yourself except in relation to other people. And he refers to the writings of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a, a pastor during, the, uh, during World War II, a German pastor who died in Germany. And, and Bonhoeffer talks about, even then, back in the 30s, about how often we, we as humans feel that we need to find ourselves. I, I just, I need to find ourselves. And this, this uh, has continued for a long time, this advice. You need to find yourself. And there's this idea that I, I focus on me and I'll find myself. And we think that if we put others first, then somehow we'll lose ourselves. I mean, who will take care of me if I'm, if I'm taking care of others? If, I, if I'm putting others first, then somehow I'm going to miss out. Somehow I'm going to get shafted or I'm going to get cheated, right? But the ironic thing is the more we pursue our own happiness the more it eludes us. And it's only as we give ourselves in service to others that we begin to find true life and find true joy. 
And so our lives are not about us. They're ultimately designed to be about others. Now, on a related note, a primary focus in this book is human limitations. And it says that God created us with limitations. That's pre-fall. That when God created all things and he said it's good, it's very good, that included humans with finitude, with limitations. And so we have to acknowledge that we can't do everything. That sometimes we, we have to say no. Sometimes we have to say no because God made us with limits. But sometimes we're saying no because we're overwhelmed serving our kids' activities or serving our own wants and our own pursuits. And we feel limited in our ability to say yes to serving others. But it's not because we don't have ability. It's because we've given ourselves in service to the wrong things. And essentially, we're serving ourselves. And we're not serving others. So it may well be that everyone in this room needs to say no to something. Let's make sure we're saying no to the right things. Because if we're followers of Christ through the gospel, who came as a servant, then as Christians, we become servants. And our lives should be about others, not just me and mine. The second implication of this identity of a servant is that nothing is beneath us. If I'm a Christian, I'm a servant. And if I'm a servant, nothing is beneath us. In every project or job, there are more enjoyable and less enjoyable tasks. And often the more significant tasks are reserved for people who have more skill or who have more seniority, which can make being assigned one of the less glamorous tasks seem like we're being unvalued or even at other times seem like we're being punished. But there couldn't have been a lower, less glamorous, less enjoyable task in the setting of the Passover meal the night before Jesus' crucifixion than the washing of feet. And it's not coincidence or accident that Jesus picked the lowest of tasks. Jesus, the, the greatest one present, performed the lowest task, showing us something about the nature of humility. I've often heard it said that humility isn't thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. And the Bible tells us in Philippians chapter 2 that in a spirit of humility, we are to think of others as being more significant than ourselves. And as a matter of fact, Philippians 2 goes on to give us an example of such humility and puts forth Jesus Christ, who did not view becoming a man as below him, but he went all the way to the bottom of the heap and took the form of a servant, even to the point of death, through one of the most public, humiliating forms of execution, reserved only for the vilest of criminals. This one scene, the night before Jesus' death, gives us a perfect picture of what his entire life was about. Things are only beneath us if we're thinking of ourselves more than others. But if we see ourselves as servants for the good of others, nothing that is for their good is too low for us. The third implication of being a servant is that as a Christian, everything we do is for the Lord. 
Everything we do is for the Lord. I remember one of the earlier churches that I was on staff at had a church-wide mission trip. And we went to a Native American reservation to do a number of different types of projects. We did some cleanup projects, we did some building projects, we did some vacation Bible school and some help on a church building. We did a number of things. It was a large group and everyone went and did different things. And, and somehow, I was one of the younger guys there at the time, I got assigned on the work crew with a handful of older retired men and it was our job to replace the windows in some houses on the reservation. These guys had all the know-how and I, I was the grunt crew. And so the reservation had, the, they had bought, the tribe had bought the windows, they just needed someone to put them in. And I remember going to this house to put in windows and you know, if you're gonna put a window, you gotta, you gotta go in the house at some point. And so we go in the house to put in the windows and as we're walking through the living room, Here's three or four guys in their late teens, early 20s, sitting around in the living room watching TV as we go back to bedrooms and we find that holes have been punched and kicked in the walls and you can smell urine. Someone has urinated in, in, on the wall or on the floor or whatever and we're getting ready to put in these, these brand new windows because the other windows have been broken out and I just had an awful attitude. I thought, there's no reason why four 60-plus-year-old men are out here doing this job when there's four 18, 19, 20-year-old guys in this house. There's no reason we're putting brand-new windows into a house that's being torn up because people don't value it when it's only a matter of time when they don't value these brand-new windows and they break them out as well. And I just got so critical and so negative. I thought, this whole thing is stupid. I mean, this is a waste of my time. It is a waste of these men's time. This is a waste of our church's time. This is a waste of time. This is, this is dumb. These guys are only going to break this. They don't deserve it. This is just enabling them. This is wrong. And that attitude lasted the majority of the week, sadly. Until Thursday night, we're having a share service. And people are sharing about all the things that God has done that week. And I'm thinking to myself, you guys are all so wrong. You think you're serving the Lord, but you have no idea how much you've wasted your time. And I'm just being so critical. And it was as if the Lord said to me, who were you doing this for? Were you doing it for them? Was it about them? Were you doing it for you? Was it about you? Or were you doing it for me? Was it about me? And I realized how wrong I was. It can be hard to make things about others when we don't think they're worthy or deserving when we think they're unappreciative, when we think it's wasteful, when we think we're being taken advantage of. And we can also feel like things are beneath us because it's not making the most use of our talents and gifts and our abilities. But if we realize that every opportunity to serve 
is unto the Lord and not to men. It's for his glory. It's out of love for him. Then how will that change our perspective? Whatever you want, Lord, right? God, whatever you say, I'll do it. We will do for those we truly love what we will do for no one else. And if we believe that God loved us so much that he sacrificed his only son so that instead of deserving, receiving the judgment that we deserve, we can be brought in and treated like his dearly loved children and receive all the blessings that Jesus earned. If we believe that he did that and that he loves us so much, how could we not possibly love him back? Realizing then that the Bible repeatedly tells us that the Lord will reward us for the deeds that we do, how can we but help view everything we do as ultimately for the Lord or unto the Lord? If we're Christians, we're servants then. Servants of God, servants of Christ, servants of our brothers and sisters in Christ, servants of the world even, for the sake of the glory of Christ. Because Christ our Lord and Savior became a servant that we might have life through him. Let's be who God has made us to be then. Amen? Amen. Now here's one critical, very important clarification. Serving in Jesus' name only counts if we allow Jesus to serve us first. On the night that Jesus washed his disciples' feet, when he first got down and began to perform this act of service, he came to Simon Peter. And Simon Peter said, Oh no, Lord, you'll not wash my feet. I, I, I'm not going to let you do that. And we can all understand that, right? Someone's tried to pay for our meal. Someone's tried to give us something. Oh, no, 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 no. We've, we've all been on the receiving end and not wanted to feel like we were receiving. So Peter says, oh, no, Lord. You're, you're not, this is embarrassing. You're not going to serve me. And Jesus says, Simon, unless I wash your feet, you have nothing to do with me. You have no part of me. And so... Simon says something dumb, and then he lets Jesus wash his feet. <laughs> Simon was good at that. We're good at that too sometimes. But you see, here's the deal. All our good works, all of our service, even if we do it in Jesus' name, without receiving his service first, without saying, Jesus, I am a sinner. I need you to wash me. If we do things in Jesus' name without receiving his service first, then all of our service is only filthy rags. It is gross and offensive to God. You see, we can't give anything to God or do anything for God on our own. It's only in receiving what Christ has done for us that we can begin to respond and follow his example and obey his commands. So as we close today, if you have not received Jesus, if you've not allowed the suffering servant who lived and bled and died for sinners to wash you, 
And I urge you, I appeal to you today, receive Christ. Surrender your life to him. Allow Jesus to wash you that you might no longer be far off, but that you might be brought near into the family of God, adopted and treated as a beloved son or daughter. Would you stand with me this morning as we pray? And as one of our musicians comes forward, and James and John, our deacons, come forward as well. Father God, we come before you this morning. We thank you so much for your great love that you sent your one and only son for us that we might not perish but have everlasting life in him, abundant life in him, life that begins now and never ends, not a life filled with worldly riches and pleasures, but a life filled with your spirit and filled with joy inexpressible and peace that surpasses all understanding. Father, we thank you that you didn't take Jesus by the back of the neck and push him out the door of heaven, force him to come to earth. But we thank you that in love, in love for you and in love for us, Jesus willingly laid down his life. That Jesus willingly humbled himself and took the form of a servant. And so, Father, I pray for every man, woman, boy, and girl in this room today who has said, I am a sinner. I know the ugliness of my thoughts, the, the wrong desires I have, plus my words and deeds. I know how often I fall short of God's perfect standard. And my only hope of being accepted by God, my only hope of heaven, my only hope of being called a son or a daughter of God is Jesus' life for me and Jesus' death for me. I pray that everyone who has come to that reality by the power of the Holy Spirit would realize that as Jesus was a servant, so also we are called to serve. And Father, I pray for every man, woman, boy, and girl in this room today who has not surrendered their life to Jesus Christ, that they would feel the need, they would feel the sense of urgency. None of us are guaranteed tomorrow. None of us can control even the number of hairs on our head. Everything is in your hands. Today is the day of our salvation. And that they would call on you. They would say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And they would receive forgiveness and the inheritance of the saints. They would become a child of God today. We thank you for your mercy and love. We thank you for your grace, Lord, and your power and your Holy Spirit that you give to those who love you. And we pray that you change us, all of us, more and more to the image and the likeness of your son, 